Well, we're going to look into God's Word together. Uh, why don't we, before uh, we look into God's Word and before we have God talk to us, let's talk to Him. Let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer. Our Father, how we love you and how we thank you for the worship this morning. Lord Jesus, how we honor you and how truly your name is worthy and worthy of all praise. And now, Holy Spirit, we come into your presence and we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to your truth. We pray for the one who teaches that you'd forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. And so now we ask that you would be the teacher, that we'd be the learners as we pray these things. In your strong name, Lord Jesus, amen. Well, I want to talk to you today about the fact that heaven can't wait. Heaven can't wait. I want to talk about heaven today, and, uh, and I, we really have two points that we want to, only two points, can you imagine that? But I have two major texts of Scripture, so I want to read them both, and then we'll take a look at heaven can't wait. First of all, our text is John 14, verses 1 through 3. This is God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then also written under the auspices of the Apostle John is Revelation 21, 1 through 7, where he writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mournings, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who has conquered will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is God's holy word. What a powerful uh, combination of texts these are, and I want to talk to you about heaven. I want to talk to you, first of all, about the, the motivating comfort of heaven, and then I want to talk to you about the motivating perfections of heaven. But before we do, I, I just want to say that heaven is one of those interesting topics, isn't it? One of those challenging topics to talk about. Uh, I, I remember the story of the, of the little boy uh, who was in a Sunday school class, and the teacher was talking about heaven. And he said to the kids, how many of you kids want to go to heaven? And they were all dancing around, raising their hands. Yes, we want to go to heaven. Except one little boy, one little boy 
who was sitting down there, a teacher said, Johnny, I thought you loved Jesus. Why don't you want to go to heaven when you die? And he said, oh, when I die, I thought you were getting up a group to go right now. Heaven is like that, isn't it? It's one of those topics. We all want to go there, but we're not sure we want to go now. And so what we do is we, well, we really don't think much about it. And yet what I have come to see as I have studied Scripture and over the years and as I get a little bit older, uh, I'm not cramming for finals yet, but I'm going to be there certainly. The reality is, is that heaven can't wait to, to make a part of our life the importance of heaven. It can't wait for us to make heaven to become a central part of our walk as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so from John 14, 1 through 3, first of all, I want to talk about the, the motivating comfort of heaven. And I'm going to give you a warning to begin with. I'm going to spend more time on the earlier text, which is the shorter text, than I'm going to spend on the longer text, okay? So here we go. Let's talk about the motivating comfort of heaven in John 14, 1 through 3. This is a powerful text of Scripture. Almost all of you have probably heard of R.C. Sproul. If you haven't heard of him, you've probably read, uh, you've heard of others that have talked about him. But Dr. Sproul was talking one day about, about these texts. What are the Christian's favorite texts in the Bible? He says there's two in his experience. John 14, 1 through 3, this text here, or 1 Corinthians 13. Well, I, I'd go for this text. 1 Corinthians 13 is a wonderful text. Who, can, who can't say that love is not an important topic? But I like this one even more than I like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me give you, before I explain these three verses to you, let me give you a little bit of the context. Because a context, uh, a text without a context doesn't make any sense at all. And so I want you to understand what's going on in here. When we get to John chapter 13, everything has changed. Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. Now, if you know much about Jesus' ministry, you know that he was all over Israel, and it's not a big country, 260 miles long at its longest point, 70 miles wide at its widest. Jesus was from Capernaum up near the, dead, uh, up near the Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem and back and forth and back and forth. But now he's up north headed south, and he's going, he's in Jerusalem, and he's headed to the cross. He's already washed the filthy feet of the disciples. The Last Supper has already taken place, and he's walking with his disciples uh, to, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has already taken the piece of bread and dipped it in the sauce and given it to, well, really, you only do that for somebody you considered an honored friend. But he gave it to Judas. And Judas immediately got up and went and betrayed him. And Jesus is with his disciples, and he has opened his heart, his heart to his disciples, and he said, because his heart was troubled, and the text of Scripture in John 13 says his heart was troubled, that he said to his disciples, I'm going to leave you. And they understood, and Peter understood, that when Jesus said, I am going to leave you, they understood that meant he was going to die. And at that point, Peter, who was there, and you know Peter, my favorite apostle, uh, not only because we share names, but uh, because he's, uh, well, 
He's as weird as I am at times. Peter never entered a room, but he entered it mouth first. He always said things he wished he hadn't said, done things he wished he hadn't done. There he is with Jesus, and Jesus is going to die, and he knows that Jesus is going to die. And he says, why can't I come with you? I'll lay down my life for you. Because Peter understood that Jesus was going to die. You remember the words of Jesus back there. He says, Peter, 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 will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me. How many times? Three times. Now, now it's fascinating that scholars tell us that at this point in history in Israel, that the Romans had a particular name for the military watch that ran from 12 midnight to 3 a.m. You know what they called that watch? They called it cockcrow. Because in Israel at this time, roosters didn't just crow at sunup. They crowed in Israel at 12.30 a.m., at 1.30 a.m., and at 2.30 a.m., just before the Cock crow watch was over. So Peter says, you're going away. Let's fight them. I'll stay with you. I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus says, Peter, it's already late at night. And before midnight, you will have denied me three times. That's the context. And so, and so in this context, Jesus looks at the disciples whose hearts are troubled they're shaken, they're ruffled, they're frustrated. Not only because Jesus is going to leave, but because Peter, the lead apostle, arguably, has been told that he's going to deny Jesus. And what do you think the impact that had on the rest of the disciples? Peter's going to deny Jesus? It's all gone. It's all over. And that's when Jesus looks at them and says, let not your heart troubled. If anybody's heart should have been troubled, it should have been Jesus. For in his sovereignty, he knew that he was going to become the Lamb of God who would be slain for our sins. And he knew everything about the cross, and he knew everything about the crucifixion. His heart should have been troubled, but he looks at his disciples, and he says, let not your heart be troubled. In fact, there's two commands here. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I don't, Jesus did not come to mess around with our hearts, to offer us hope and then to take it away. He said, everything that I'm going to tell you is true. I'm going to leave, but I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again for you. This is motivating and comforting for the disciples. I want you to know that Jesus said this to comfort the disciples. You can read Matthew 24 and find out the details of the end times. You, you can read 1 Thessalonians uh, 4 and 5 and find some details about the end times, and they'll be comforting, but nothing is more comforting than this. Why? Why is, why is heaven so comforting, and why is it so motivating? Let me give you the reasons. Here you go. First of all, because Jesus will be there. Because Jesus will be there. That's why heaven is so comforting. What he's trying to say to the disciples is that when he prepares the new heaven and the new earth, and when it all comes around, he will be there. 
Why was Peter so desperate? Why did Peter say, Lord, I will lay down my life for you? Here, I'll tell you why. Because, and this is what we miss as we read the Gospels so often, we miss how incredibly enjoyable and meaningful and fulfilling it was for the disciples simply to hang around Jesus. Peter didn't want to lose being with Jesus because Jesus was the Son of God and saved God come in the flesh. He is the most engaging person who ever lived, ever. And the disciples, the disciples were taken with him in the same way that when we see him face to face, we will be absolutely amazed at the charisma, at the love, at the warmth, at the power of Jesus. Jesus will be there in heaven, and we often miss that. Remember that song? I don't know who sang it years ago. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Remember that? Of course there is. Of course there is, because he's the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And when you utter his name, and when you understand that his name represents who he is, it stirs something within the hearts of the believers. I was listening to a Johnny Cash song the other day. That great theologian and Christian singer, Johnny Cash. And I believe he was a, he was a Christian, I believe, even though he was messed up. He knew the gospel. He was talking about Jesus. I was listening to a Johnny Cash song, and I got choked up in what he was saying about Jesus. The disciples lived with him, traveled with him, heard him teach over and over and over. I never got tired. And sometimes people would say, who is this man who speaks with such authority? And the disciples would go, I know, I know. We've heard the same message. He gave that up in Capernaum. I heard that before. Powerful. They never got over it. They never got used to it. They saw Jesus walk on water, heal a man born blind, raise Lazarus from the dead. And do you think that ever stopped surprising them? No. I mean, they were just absolutely amazed. When, remember the transfiguration? What did Peter? Oh, Peter again. They, they, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what does he say? Jesus, this is cool. It's in the original Greek. Jesus, this is awesome. You, me, Elijah, Moses, let's just set up a couple of tents. Peter, James, John, we'll just stay here. Let, forget everybody down the hill. Who cares? Heaven. Because of who Jesus was. And after the resurrection, when the disciples were walking and talking with Jesus, remember that? And Luke on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know it was Jesus, but after the resurrection, when, when, when they realized who it was they had been talking to, they said, our hearts, what? Burned. Our hearts were stirred. Our hearts burned within us. I've been to Israel twice, and one time I was driving in my own car, rented car, from, from the Sea of Galilee back to Haifa on the coast. And I, I, I was just, I was driving along roads where Jesus may well have walked out in the, the rolling hills. And I said, my Lord was here. Heaven is motivating because Jesus will be there. And he will satisfy you more than you can have. He not only, he's not only going to be there, he's going to come get us to take us there personally. 
That is motivating and comforting. Secondly, I want you to note that not only is heaven motivating and comforting because Jesus is there, because the Father will be there too. The Father will be there. In 1 John, in his letter, it's absolutely uh, amazing how, how in, in 1 John, John starts out that letter saying, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've heard with our ears, what we handled and our hands touched concerning the word of truth. And he's talking about Jesus. And he was manifested and he came and he walked among us. What we have seen and heard that we proclaim to you. Catch this. That you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with Jesus and God the Father. Our core identity is as daughters and sons of the living God. God is our Father. And I want to tell you that that will never change. Your workers, your, your mothers, your fathers, your husbands, your wives, your sisters, your brothers, you have all kinds of different roles, don't you? But let me tell you one thing that will never, ever change, and that is that you are a daughter or a son of the living God because of what Jesus has done for you. And God is your Father. That will never change. I had lunch on Friday in Orlando with a friend of mine who I've known for a long time. And he uh, works for the city government in one of the cities up there. And uh, he said to me, you know, they're trying to edge me out of my job. And they're changing his office from an office in the corner to one with no windows and a little cubicle. And he says, I think I'll go crazy in there. He's got two years to retirement. I looked to him and I said, Lee, first and foremost, you're the father's sons. You're his son. And I know this is disappointing, but what will never change is that the father of our Lord Jesus Christ loves you deeply. And that is your core identity. What makes heaven so incredible is that the father will be there. I'm writing a book right now, Son, Reflections on Having a Perfect Father, because so many men uh, who I minister to struggle with having had a good father. Well, God the Father is the jackpot. He's incredible. And when we get home, when you get home, you know what he's going to say? He's going to shout your name, and he's going to say, I've been waiting for you forever. And it will be true. And he'd been calling you and protecting you, and drawing you. And you will see the only Father that really matters, your Heavenly Father, when you get there. Well, what's also motivating about heaven is that there's plenty of space. Jesus says there is one mansion, and then there are many rooms. And that's the idea that he's carrying out. There'll be plenty of space there. Can you imagine Israel and the thousands of people that crowded around the Sea of Galilee to hear Jesus speak? The hordes, the thousands of people. Heaven is going to be a place where there is a, it's going to be a literal place, an earthy place. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But it will be a mansion. The Father has a mansion, and you will have a spacious room in it. Jesus uses very clear words. I had the privilege of spending the, the night over uh, in Coral Gables uh, in the condo of, of the Parsons, Huber and Phyllis 
And it was a wonderful place. It would be this condominium, beautiful condominium with many rooms, and it was spacious. And that's a little picture of what you will have. And when you want to be with people, you can be with people. When you don't want to be with people, you can get away from people. You say, I don't like, I don't like uh, the city. I wanted the countryside. Okay, but you'll enjoy this city, the new heaven and the new earth. And you'll, you'll be able to get out to the countryside as well. One of my favorite places on this planet is uh, West Point. I've been able to speak up there a few times uh, to the Navigator Ministry, and it's a wonderful place, the Military Academy at West Point. If you've ever been there, you know they have all this uh, old architecture and beautiful homes, and it's a self-contained community. It's a beautiful place, and it kind of portrays it's not heaven because there's a graveyard there, but, but it carries this idea of beauty and culture and a community. Heaven will be like that. That's motivating. This is motivating and comforting because he's already prepared the place. Jesus said to the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, what I want you to understand is that this text reveals that heaven already exists, doesn't it? The new heaven and new earth already exists because his father is there. And there are rooms already there. What he's saying is, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what he means is that he's going to the cross. It was Jesus going to the cross where he took your place and my place. Where he took your sin and he took my sin. And because of his death, burial, and resurrection, he secured a place for us in the new heaven and the new earth. It's already done. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your place is secured. If you're not, receive him. Come to him. Because heaven is a very, very, very real place to be. And this is so motivating to know that we have a place in heaven because Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection has secured it. As I said, I live in Orlando, and many of you may have been following the events of the last several weeks that have been taking place in Orlando. Uh, uh, imagine that, a little suburb of Orlando called Sanford, Florida, which is really right in my backyard. There's been a major trial that has received national attention that's been going on. It's been going on for many, many weeks. The George Zimmerman murder trial of Trayvon Martin and well, I've listened to testimony. I've tried to follow what, what, what was a, the right, uh, what really happened. And you know what I've concluded? I've concluded that nobody but God really knows what happened. I, I, I just don't know. I know that tragedy took place. I, I've uh, heard this morning that uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted. Should he have been acquitted? I don't know. But I know this. When it comes to my sins, I should not have been acquitted. But because of Jesus, I have been acquitted of my sins. He took them all. And I have been forgiven. And, and for all of those who have embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, your sins have been removed and you are acquitted, and you are not guilty. 
Steve Brown and I were talking this past week because I had read R.C. Sproul saying that sin is committing cosmic treason. That sounds so harsh, doesn't it? That when I sin, I commit cosmic treason. And I said, Steve, is that true? And he said, of course it's true. I said, I know. I said, but, but I'm his son. And I wrote back to Steve on my email. I said, but that means when I sin, because I'm his son, I'm not a cosmic traitor. I'm just his son who sometimes commits cosmic treason, right? He said, yes. I'll go with that. Good. I was glad. He's my mentor, and uh, I don't want to mess up. And I believe that's true. That God isn't angry with you, and he isn't angry with me because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And all of these things are so powerful that they, that they bring us to the reality of comfort and motivation because, because of what Jesus has done for us. And heaven is a real earthly place. That's the fifth thing that's the most motivating thing here is that heaven is a very real and earthy place. I don't know where we get this idea of heaven as a place of, uh, uh, where there's ethereal mist and we will float around in heaven forever with those robes on and, uh, you know, I, where does that imagery come from? It doesn't come from the Bible. I don't even like robes. I don't even have an ecclesiastical robe. I want to be in a very earthy place. That's what heaven is. More about that in just a second. We're almost done. But it's important for us to understand that heaven is, is a place of reality a place of the new heavens and the new earth. And I'm not going to do it because we don't have time, really. But, but I, what I want to do by, is just to direct you to that last text, Revelation 21, 1 through 7, and, and, and leave it to you to think through and, 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 and mull over this, this next week. Maybe starting today, if you have some time, to understand that the motivating perfections are heaven is that it will be a new heaven and a new earth. God is in the process of making all things new. There will be moral perfection there. There will be relational perfection. The church will be there. You'll be there. I'll be there, and I won't be a mess up. I'll be perfect. God will be there. Relational perfection, experiential perfection, no sadness or loss or disease, or addiction, or fear, or cancer, or homelessness, or injustice. The comfort of heaven is motivating, and we are called to focus on that. In fact, I believe that a full-orbed Christian world and life view means that we know where we came from, God made us, that we know what we're to be doing here on the planet. Jesus redeemed us, to enjoy, to worship, to serve, to fellowship, to grow, but we're going someplace. And where we're going ties together this full orb sense of who we are as a Christian. I love C.S. Lewis, and I know your pastor loves the things that C.S. Lewis writes as well. One of the most powerful statements Lewis wrote was this, and I'll close with this, I really will. If you read history, C.S. Lewis said, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who sat 
on the foot of the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade and left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And then I saw it. I saw it up here. The purposes of this church. Aim higher. Dig deeper. Reach wider. That's what grace does. It calls us to him and sets us free as we look ahead to focus on what we're supposed to be doing here. My challenge, focus on heaven. Focus on where you're going a little bit more. Focus on what he's done. What he's done. And when your heart begins to get troubled, bend it, bend it. Bend it to believe in Jesus. Bend it to believe in the one who has re reserved a place for you. Not going to be perfect here, but it will be perfect there. That's our hope. You take it to heart, and let's pray. Our living God, how we thank you for your great power. How we thank you for the world that you created. How we thank you for the new heavens and the new earth that you are in the process of making all things new. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that because of your death, burial, and resurrection, because of your triumph, you, in fact, have overcome all of our sin, of our failing, and you have given us the hope of what is to come. Lord, you know everybody in this room, and you love them so much. And so I pray that, Lord, you would meet their needs deeply, make the gospel live in their hearts, enable them to understand your great love for them, to live today in light of your love, and then, Lord Jesus, to honor and glorify you as they look ahead for what is to come. We have sung great praise to you, and we give you honor and praise and glory now as we pray in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if this message encouraged or challenged you, hope you'll share it with a friend. And by the way, make sure you visit us at keylife.org.